Hey, listeners of the Sweat Elite podcast, it's Matt here again. Today's podcast episode guest is an elite junior runner, or he's just transitioned out of being a junior, by the name of George Cush. George Cush is a South African runner. He was born and raised in South Africa. He ran a sub-four-minute mile before the age of 20. He ran a 147, 800 metres at the age of 17, which is an elite time. It's only a couple of seconds off qualifying for the Olympic Games. And George last year made the decision to move over to the USA and compete for the University of Nebraska in the NCAA collegiate system. So this episode is all about that. It's all about George's transition from being a South African junior runner to competing in the NCAA system in the US. He obviously talks about the pros and cons of college in the US under the NCAA system, what it's like at the University of Nebraska, some of the challenges he's faced in transitioning over to there, and we speak a lot about his training now and in the past, and George has been a subscriber of Sweat Elite for quite some time. He finds training philosophies and improvement in running very interesting, and he has been studying a lot of the articles and books that we've written, and we've, we talk a bit about that in this podcast episode as well. Thanks to all who have been listening to the previous episodes. The last episode we recorded last week, all about elite distance running in 2020, myself and Freddie Ovet has had an enormous response. The downloads have been well over 10,000 within a few days of uh, releasing it, and uh, I really appreciate everyone who's checked out that episode and subscribed as well to support the podcast and Sweat Elite. So this podcast episode, you can listen to the first half, and then if you'd like to listen to the rest, you can subscribe at the link in the show notes if it's there. Otherwise, just going to Sweat Elite Podcast, you'll be prompted to subscribe once you are in the link of George Cush's full episode. That's about all from me. In this introduction, I hope you enjoy this podcast episode with George Cush. Oh, and I forgot to say, the audio quality in this podcast episode is very average. I do apologize for that. We had a technical problem with this podcast episode and the one with Brian Livingston, and the speaker was broken, so we had to record it a different way, and it doesn't sound as good as it normally would. I do apologize for this once again. You can hear George clearly, but he just sounds quite different to me. Once again, I hope you enjoy this podcast episode and the audio quality in future will be improved. Thanks for tuning in to another Sweat Elite podcast episode. Today on the phone call, I have George Cush, who is at Nebraska studying over there in the NCAA system. George is from South Africa and has some very impressive times that I'll go through shortly in the middle distances. But thanks thanks for joining, Mr. Cush. Yeah, thank you, Matt. It's uh, definitely nice to be on that podcast. <laughs> so I met you a few years ago now in Finland, where you were at the time not studying over in the US. You were competing as a as an eighteen year old for South Africa. You've actually you had actually at the time been to correct me. It was World Juniors or World Youth. You had already been to at that point. Well, yeah, I was World Juniors in Bosch Poland. That's right. And that's where you yeah. ran your personal best for the 800 at the time, which was 147.4. No, I ran, uh, I ran 147.5 at Poland, in Poland, and I ran, uh, I ran my PR at the South African Champs in 2016, the Senior National Champs. Right, okay. So that was yeah. actually a little, bit, uh, a little bit before I met you in 2017. But you were in Finland competing with a few other South African guys, and I was helping pace at a few of the races in Finland as a pacemaker, and uh, we hit it off, got along pretty well. We've been in touch ever since. I even came to South Africa to visit you uh, about six months after that. You showed me around your hometown, Pretoria, which was, which was a treat. 
But uh, as I promised, I'll quickly go through your best times. We can comment as we go. So 147.45 at age, uh, at the time you would have been 17 or 18 to run that. 17. 17. Yeah, I was 17. I ran that. That's, uh, I mean, many listeners are probably more familiar with 10K half marathon and marathon times, but I I mean, I was a middle distance runner. They, they, not many people run 147 at age 17. <laughs> That's uh, yeah. uh, especially yeah, uh, outside of Kenya. Yeah, it was, it was definitely a good year of running. <laughs> uh, 1,500 meter personal best, 3.39.33, which you ran when and where? So I ran that uh, in California uh, at a meet in Stanford, <clears throat> at Stanford. And uh, I think it was in April or May. Yeah, I think it was in April or May that I ran that in uh, 2019, so this year. Okay. So, so I actually raced Clayton Murphy. He was uh, also in the race, and he ran 337. All right. You went far away. You went far off him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so now you, are, you, you, are, you have just recently turned 21. Yep. And so you must have run that at the age of 20. And you also ran an outdoor mile in 358.96, which was early in 2018. So you must have done that as a 19-year-old. Yeah. So sub-four-minute miler before age 20, which is also a huge feat. Not too many people manage that. Um, Yeah, so so you've been over in Nebraska now. I guess now it's a a good time to sort of transition to, um, before we talk more about, um, sort of the philosophies of of training, which we which we discuss all the time over Facebook Messenger and, and WhatsApp, and you're always asking me very intelligent questions, and I'm always having good conversations with you. I think we can talk a little bit about your experience at Nebraska in the NCAA system before we talk about the training, because uh, I think uh, for people coming out of high school and even early days in university in countries such as South Africa or Australia, New Zealand, UK. Um, many top athletes do get approached by universities. Uh, a lot of the time, people are not sure if it's a good idea for them or not. So, um, And of course, there is not one answer, and, and it's a bit of a hit and miss. Some people seem to have good experiences over in the US, and some people ha- seem to have um, neutral or negative experiences, but um, it'd be really good to hear more about what it's been like for you. And I guess we can start by talking about how you ended up at Nebraska, when, and then we can, we can go from there. Yeah, so I was one of the people... Um that initially did not want to come to the U.S. Um, so I started uh, studying after high school. I started studying in Pretoria, uh, and I finished. I finished three semesters at the University of Pretoria before I came to Nebraska. Um, and I also thought, no, it would not be a good idea to go to the U.S. Um, but mostly, it was because of myths that people tell you. Um, so there's a lot of myths that go around about the NCAA and about the U.S. Uh, and one of it is that uh, a lot of people say that they're going to overtrain you, they're going to overrace you, and basically they're just going to use you um, as a like a donkey to run a lot of races, which is a which is not true at all. Um, I, mean, I, I don't speak for all the universities in the US, but in general they take good care of you. So um, halfway through my three semesters at Pretoria, uh, I realised that the support in uh, as an athlete in South Africa, is not ideal. So um, you're you're on your own a lot. Um, you don't have as you don't have support from the university as much. You don't have financial support. But the the big problem is the coaching. 
you're not really part of a structure you're not really part of yeah um so the main reason why i wanted to shift it is because i didn't feel like i was being coached yeah. at a very high level when i came to pretoria which yeah. would have been at the start of 2017 i remember you very i think it was the start of 2017 when i visited you in pretoria i remember quite clearly you you being a little bit uh, i don't know about stress but you were a little bit almost felt a little bit lost in a way about the fact that you you knew you had the talent to become an elite professional runner in the senior years but you didn't really have anyone or any sort of structure as you're already talking about so i do remember that very clearly talking with you about that yeah yeah, yeah um you know coming out of high school i really didn't have a, no- a lot of knowledge about running because um, in high school you didn't really i i didn't read up in high school about running i didn't really look at different programs i basically just did what my coach told me to do um and i mean in my final year of high school it really seemed to work so i didn't really care about reading up and like trying to learn more about the sport so um as soon as i was out of high school and i was on my own and i had to decide how far i should run how fast i should run when i should run and it uh i got bogged down by the details of it yeah. um and i felt like moving to the ncaa would take care of that because then you're part of a structure and you have a coach telling you this is what you should do this is when you should do it and I thought like that'll be a better fit than uh, trying to do it on your own in South Africa. Yeah. So, um, the other thing is also after having a very good senior year in high school, uh, my performance declined slightly. And uh, yeah, I was worried about that because obviously you don't want to um, be the guy that ran well in high school and then couldn't capitalize off that from from that performances. Yeah. Yeah, and so I remember when you came, I told you, um, and it, yeah, like I was a bit unsure about training and stuff like that, but uh, I have to say where I am today is a lot, it's a lot, it's a world apart from where I was when you uh, came to visit me. Yeah, absolutely. So how did Nebraska come about of all places? I mean, great university, but where did that, how did that begin? Uh, it's it's right in the middle of the US, huh? not a... It's not the most famous university, especially for running, uh, maybe for football, but not for running. Um, so it's it's a funny story, but uh, there's a, a quite a few ex-Nebraska people that are from South Africa, so a Nebraska alumni, um, that also ran for them. And uh, one of the people is Arvin Smith. He was a 800-meter athlete uh, at Nebraska. And he's the owner of a local running club in South Africa. And so I spoke to him and I said, yeah, um, I want to move to the U.S. maybe and see if I can yeah, join in the NCAA system. And he said, well, he knows because he was at Nebraska, you can contact the, the coaches there and um, ask them if they have a scholarship available. And so um, I started looking into Nebraska and it turns out they've got a very good actual science department, which I study my major and uh, the athletics facilities I saw was world class, and so at the time it seemed it seemed like a great fit. Yeah. And so yeah, one led to another, and I came to Nebraska. As simple as that. So you, you, I mean, were you approached by other colleges as well before and around that time? Because I mean, coming out of high school with a one forty seven, or you might have run it slightly after you finished high school. That's 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 really world world junior class. I mean, as we've already said, you were at the world juniors. Uh, you made the final at the World Juniors, is that right? Or oh, no, I missed missed it with one spot. Ah, oh, that's right. Yeah. So did you? Uh, yeah, did you have other offers, or how did that? How did that work? 
Yeah, so in high school, because I ran 147 uh, in, I think I ran that in June, so I was still in the middle of my high school year, um, I got a lot of offers from a lot of universities, but uh, as I told you at the time, I was not really interested in coming to the US. Um, mm. I thought the grass is greener in my own country. Um, and so, yeah, I got a lot of offers, but when I started studying at Pretoria, um, you know, the, the <laughs> offers decline because you're already in university and so you're not a you're a, you're not a pos- prospect anymore yeah sure okay so, uh, makes sense by the time by the time i wanted to come to the u.s uh i still had a couple of options but obviously i was not as uh uh what do you call it attractive to <laughs> schools because i started my career in Victoria. yeah okay yeah makes sense yeah so so in, in summary you did have plenty of offers but at the time you, you didn't think it was a good idea, and then fast forward sort of two years later, you realised it was probably a good idea, and and then yeah, it, it, you know I can also attest to uh, I, I attended uh, Texas A and M for a little while, uh, a good 12, 13 years ago now, um, and yeah, after you've already started university in your home country, it is a little bit harder to get a scholarship because um, it, it's it's you don't have as much eligibility, but. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So you, Nebraska, and, and and how long have you now been there, and and what is your overall opinion about the experience been? I mean, I know you shared a little bit already at the start, but uh, it'd be really good to dive deeper into that topic. Yeah. So um, this is my I'm busy with my third semester at Nebraska. So I finished two semesters already, uh, and I finished uh, one cross season and one indoor season and one outdoor season, and I'm busy with my second cross season right now uh, we actually have nationals on saturday uh, in indiana and so um yeah my experience at nebraska has been pretty smooth and, and good so far um outside of running it it's a pretty it's a very nice town it's clean and the people are absolutely crazy about anything nebraska <laughs> so uh, if you do well regardless of what sport you do um people are pretty enthusiastic about it yeah. Obviously, they prefer the football, but people are pretty proud of the university. So that's been a positive thing because if you want to build a fan base to go pro one day, then you can tap into the pride that people have for Nebraska. Yeah. Uh, more specifically, running wise, uh, it's been it's been a a very enlightening journey because as I told you, coming here, I wouldn't say I had the most knowledge about running. Um, mostly training on my own in South Africa. I didn't know really what it takes to become a good athlete. And so as soon as I joined the NCAA, you uh, become aware of the depth of competition that you have. Um, and then you learn, like, there's a lot of people out there and all of them want to go pro, all of them want to run well. So uh, that turns your, it turns your focus up a bit because you learn, well, you're good, but there's a hundred other people that are good too, you know, so uh, one thing that I learned pretty quickly is the amount of running that you have to do to get to the top. You're not going to get away with running now and then. You're going to have to really grind it out if you want to rise to the top. Um, at least that's how high I have experienced it. Yeah. And so I'll say um, gradually, gradually over my time at Nebraska, I've, uh, I've learned a lot about running. Um, every university and every program has a different a slightly different philosophy about how they train. Um, we Our structure basically works. We have, let's say, a long run on Sunday, and then uh, we have three morning practices where you wake up at six and uh, you run typically like six miles, which is 
9.6 kilometers and then you lift three times a week um and then workouts are spaced out between the week um but one thing that was very interesting when i came to nebraska is the differences in training that i did in south africa compared to what we do now so in south africa and i think this is a very general statement people do a lot of workouts a week um they'll they'll grind a monday workout a tuesday workout a thursday workout a friday workout whereas in nebraska and i think in general in the ncaa you don't typically do more than three workouts a week yeah um it's usually a long run and then two other workouts but it's never more than that um and so when i first got into the program i thought wow this is this is something new because i'm used to really cranking up the workouts and now you take an easy day and do a workout you take two easy days do a workout um but actually that was very good for my performance because it allows you to recover and then really get a benefit from the workouts you actually do yeah absolutely yeah doing uh, more than three workouts in a week is 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 tough on the body and i think it's it is somewhat co- common for, for for much younger athletes to be doing that because i don't know i'm not exactly sure of the physio the physiology there but i you know even myself in australia i remember doing doing sort of interval sessions four four or five times a week in high school but then very quickly after that i i realized that there was there was better ways but um yeah okay so and, and you also have mentioned to me in previous messages that um you've been teaching some of the the the, the athletes there uh, the benefits of maybe taking your easier days a little bit easier. So it'd be interesting to talk a bit about that as well. Yeah, that's a funny story. Um, so when I came to Nebraska, um, I won't say I was as fit as I am right now. And so I started working out with the group in the mornings three times a week, but uh, they tend to push the morning runs, um, typically a sub six minute a mile pace, which I guess in kilometers is probably 340 to 350 pace yeah uh, and for that for me on a morning run uh, it was a bit tough uh, especially <laughs> after you've, you've done a hard workout um uh, yeah it, it was a bit tough and i also noticed that the group tend to get injured on a very frequent basis um and so i started reading up i mean reading up takes a lot of time before you actually learn anything but uh yeah, I just I just came to the conclusion that running morning runs that fast for me individually doesn't work. Maybe some other people prefer it, but uh, I prefer to do morning runs recovery as a main focus and then a second priority, maybe getting a, an aerobic benefit from it. But um, so I started running on my own pretty easy in the mornings. Um, anything between I'll say six thirty per mile to seven thirty per mile. Mm-hmm. which is probably in kilometers it's like 415 to 430 yeah per kilo. that's right which, yeah which is reasonably easy um and so initially i was on my own running slower the whole group running pretty fast uh, and then i started running well um indoor season i broke four in the mile and outdoor i ran 339 which was good improvements for me and it was a it was positive improvements and so I guess a, some a lot of athletes from the group decided that they want to do that too, and so I've got my own group running slow in the mornings now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I totally agree with that. I guess philosophy. I, I went through periods of doing my recovery days a lot harder, and then I've noticed that whenever I was taking them a bit easier, I was certainly seeing more improvements. 
um, yeah, yeah, really good to hear. But when you were when you were back in South Africa and you, um, I guess before you went to Nebraska, when you were kind of training on your own, um, how were you treating those those aerobic days? Were you doing them at what sort of speed and how and for how long? Yeah, so in South Africa, there was a lot less emphasis on aerobic runs. Um, well, to be honest, I didn't really know what aerobic runs were at the time, <laughs> but. But uh, yeah, well, I, yeah, and I, but I clearly remember that. Um, uh, basically, we went, we did a Monday workout, and I, I didn't, I didn't do any morning ones when I was in high school. So it was a workout on Monday, which was typically a track workout. Tuesday would be like a forty-minute aerobic run, and then Wednesday workout, Thursday hills, Friday rest, Saturday track workout, and then Sunday like a sixty-minute run. Right. So, if I look back at it now, it's basically two aerobic runs. Yeah, which is uh, which is worlds apart from what I'm doing now. Now most of my program is aerobic runs, and then I do two anaerobic workouts a week, typically. Yeah. So um, I don't know how I got away with it, but in high school it seemed to work. But as I said, after high school that did not work as well anymore. And so I think if you want to improve in the long long term, I think doing aerobic running is a uh, it becomes more important. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, you certainly did get away with it at a young age. I mean, one forty-seven four in high school is is absolutely blazing. I, I don't think there'd be many many high school records in the world that are faster than that. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you are right. Not many people get away with it for long, and and it is also a bit of a recipe for for injury once you once you get a little bit older. Um, yeah. Yeah. Back to your program in Nebraska. There, so three mornings a week, you're doing these six mile runs at at, at about seven minute roughly mile pace which is i guess about 415 to 420 per kilometer give or take um do you do a second run on those days or is it just the just the morning run in the gym yeah so um i started uh, adapting the the program to fit my needs uh, so i basically do 11 to 12 runs a week um so yeah most days i have second run in there um and so on easy days i'll typically do seven miles and then five miles in the afternoon with some drills and speed as needed and then the next morning typically when we do the six mile run in the morning i do a workout in the afternoon right so yeah typically i run twice a day and then a long run on the seventh day yep okay and some of those uh sorry a quick change to the workout days you shared with me last week some of the training sessions you've been doing and we don't have to dive deep into it if you don't want to but some of them are seriously impressive and, I, and I'm looking forward to seeing what you what you run this uh, indoor and outdoor track season but um, some of the 1k repeat sessions especially that you've been doing in, in roughly 245 uh, average which is uh, which is very quick so and, and are these those interval sessions that you've been sharing with me I guess you know there's been some some 1k repeat sessions some mile repeat sessions is this is this what Nebraska sort of uh, prescribed for you or are you also creating those sessions yourself? Um, so I have an agreement with my coach. So we, we plan together, we plan ahead together. So a lot of times I will go sit with him and I'll tell him, this is what I think that we should do. And he'll tell me what he thinks we should do. And then we come up with a combined plan. And, uh, we've realized that that works a lot better because it, it keeps me happy. It keeps him happy. And then, uh, we tend to work well together when we do that. And so typically what I would do is, tell him what category of training I think we need to do. So 
I won't tell him specific workouts, but I will tell him I think we need to still focus on aerobic base or start working on anaerobic conditioning or interval workouts, more the broad general type of stuff we need to do or heel running and he'll come up with a plan um, and he'll give me specific workouts. Yeah. Okay. So usually my coach worries about the specific workouts and I, I just tend to help and uh, say what type of workouts I think we should do. Yeah. Okay. Uh, favorite, favorite workout of yours at the moment? Which one would you most get most excited to do? in this base phase, I guess, because you're in the middle of cross-country season, which is one that you see that you're, you're excited to, to, to tackle? Um, yeah, so I, I, I really like that 10 times 1 case. Um, I guess it depends on in which shape you are, because if, if you're not in good shape, it's not going to be a very good workout. <laughs> That's but, um, true. I'll say the 10 times 1 case, it's a fun workout because it, uh, it really shows you in what shape, it shows in what shape you are. Like, if you're in bad shape, that workout will show you. And if you're in good shape, it'll. It's really. It's a, for me. It's a good indication of where you are. Because um, ten times one k, I think it's too too many reps to let you get away with bad bad shape. Yeah, I almost uh, feel like doing something like ten four hundreds or twelve four hundreds with two minutes rest. You can. It, it almost. You can almost get away with doing that session reasonably well, even when you're not really fit <laughs> because yeah. of the because of the recovery time and yeah but 10 by 1k is is very different and as you said i don't think it's i don't think it's possible to to really nail a session like that if you're if you're not not close to 100 percent fitness yeah i think you have to be aerobically developed before you should tackle that workout i don't think it's something you should do in uh, in pure base for uh, season yeah um because it is it's very anaerobic it's not an anaerobic capacity, but it's it's definitely anaerobic conditioning. Yep. Um, and aerobic capacity, but I think that type of workout is good to tackle after you've done uh, substantial base work. Yep. Um, yeah. Okay. Thanks for sharing. And long runs. How long are you running? How fast are you running? How frequently? Uh, it'd be good to learn more about that because we've sort of already gone over the the gym the. The recovery, aerobic runs, the yeah, a little bit about the workouts, but what what sort of duration and, and pace do you are you doing on your long runs? Yeah, that's also that's also a hotly debated topic um, yeah. because a lot of people see it as just a long, slow distance LSD run. Um, but that's personally, I believe a long run should be seen as a, not a steady state, but you should go up as in the high higher end of the aerobic spectrum. Um, that's why we take easy. We take typically two easy days before a long run and an easy day after a long run. So usually I feel pretty good when I do the long run, and uh, I believe you should you should get up in the aerobic zone. It's not a it's not a long slow distance. I don't I don't think it's LSD. So typically what I what I would do is uh, I would go out in the country in Nebraska where it's very hilly, and uh, we'd uh, crank out. 15 to 16 miles so out of season usually 16 miles but as soon as you start racing it's hard to do uh, 16 miles so usually when then we'll cut it down to 15 or 14 miles which um for people that use the metric system is 24k 15 miles is 24 kilometers yeah and so we'll go out in the country um yeah we crank out 15 miles and they usually 
um, it's I, I don't have a certain pace that I hit and try and hit that all the time. It's usually basically how I feel, but we always try and run a little bit faster than morning runs because you want to get up in that aerobic zone. Yeah. And so I would say on average we run six minutes, uh, yeah, six minutes per mile. Okay, about three forty, three forty-five. Yep. And so, do you, do you start yeah. off at that pace, or do you build build into it? Yeah, you. Yeah, I definitely build into it. Um. So we'll we'll typically start at say six thirty, six forty, and then then we'll go down six twenty, six fifteen, six ten, six, and then usually there's a five fifty in there as well. Yeah. Um. But the hills make it more challenging. Uh, to run on because it's it's pretty steep hills, but I feel like that's a very good combination workout because you get a long run in and uh, with the hills it gives you some added strength workout, especially in season when you can't do a hill workout, a long run, and let's say interval or track workout. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's good to shift the strength work with the long run. Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a solid long run. And one one point I just want to make on something you said a minute or two ago. You said the long runs maybe shouldn't be long, slow distance. Now, you also said that the long run is a hotly, uh, it, it's a, it's a, it's a hot, really, like debated topic. <laughs> One thing I think people have got to keep in mind is it really depends on the event you're training for as well, because the long run can be slow. I think alternating between slow and fast. If you're training for say a marathon or a half marathon, because there are, there are reasons to do slower long runs if you are training for a marathon for example i had a conversation yesterday i recorded a podcast episode with brian livingston who is a 221 marathon runner and he's been running marathons for uh, over a decade now um he discusses the benefits of doing longer uh, not not slow but you know not fast runs either um, to avoid muscle cramping. And he talks a little bit about that. I won't spoil it, but you can listen to that podcast. Um, but if you're training for the middle distance races, 800, 500 meters, um, it's completely different. And I think that I do agree with you in saying that doing the long runs uh, slow is probably not the best uh, method. But um, yeah, I think that it, it is important to distinguish between um, or, or at least understand what is the individual training for which event is he, is he or she training for is it is it 1500 800 5k 10k half marathon or marathon because the pace of the long run um and the benefits you'll get from them it really kind of depends on what you're training for um but i think in the middle distance events for sure i think starting at a slightly easier pace and building into a, a moderate steady run is is at least what i have understood to be the most common method amongst the elite runners. So David Radisha, for example, even though he doesn't run very long at all, his long run is, is no more than 13 or 14 kilometers. It's a, a quite a steady pace as well. So, yeah. 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 And I, I think uh, when you try and build your mileage uh, at the start of the base season, it's a, uh, it's not wise to try and run as fast as possible in the long run. Um, let's say when you, start in the base season you start with 10 miles or 12 miles long run um obviously when you want to increase the speed on that you uh i mean the distance on that uh, i don't know if you should r- run it as fast as possible every time um so typically what i do is i don't when i start my base season i started at a not a slow pace but a not as fast as i run now and then i build it up up until i get to 15 16 miles and then as soon as I get there, I started increasing the pace. I feel like that just prevents injuries 
Yeah. And uh, it just gives me a chance to slowly build up my mileage before I really try and get fit and in shape. Yeah. No, that's very well said. Awesome. No, thanks for sharing that. So overall, I'm not a huge fan of counting mileage, but it is good to just get some sort of grasp of the overall volume. What is the overall volume of your week very roughly in the... I know that you really don't really count too much either, but in, in the base period, what, what sort of weekly volume are you doing in miles? Yeah, so I'm not a, yeah, as well, I'm not a big fan of counting miles. I see it really as an irrelevant number. And yeah. uh, a lot of times people just try and hit an arbitrary number, which I really think is weird. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah like I know some people that will hit 94 and then they'll just go out for a six-mile run just to hit 100. Yeah, and, that, uh, that is ridiculous. That is really silly in my opinion. Yeah, I don't really think that's always smart because um, no. I don't know how much benefit you get from doing a six-mile run. <laughs> uh, no. Yeah. But uh, I, I did count it once or twice in the base season and uh, I, I started out with like 50 miles and I slowly built it up. And I, when I was in my the peak of my base season, I'll say I, I hit 100, 110 miles. Yeah, okay. About 160, 175 kilometers. Yeah, yeah, which is which is quite a lot. Um, but yeah. Yeah, again, I really, I really think high mileage is a byproduct from an effective training program more than it is the main focus point. Yeah, for uh, sure. Especially in, in especially in middle distance, I really, I don't think it's necessary for me to hit high mileage. I just think it's it's gonna be a, a result if I train well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, awesome. Okay, lastly, on the more specifics of the program that you've been, you're doing at the moment, what are you doing in the gym? You said it's three times a week. Uh, yeah. what, what's what's going on in there? Yeah, so the gym is one area that I do not have a lot of expertise on. Um, I just trust my gym instructor uh, to uh, give me a program and I, I follow what he gives me. But uh, we we typically work, so we do, uh, if you don't race on the weekend, you have 30 days where you lift. And so we have, it's two different days. So it's two, Monday and Friday is the same workout, same same lifting stuff and then wednesday is a different is a different uh, different day so monday we typically go heavy and friday it's typically light and then wednesday is explosive so on a heavy day monday we'll do squats which is the mo- most important things are squats um you try and you try and hit a heavy heavy squat and you do three times eight reps typically and uh, lunges i know Bench press, uh, bicep curls. Um, we do a lot of uh, we do a lot of uh, um, box jumps on Wednesdays. Mm-hmm. Uh, more explosive stuff. We you uh, it's not really heavy. It's not as hard on your legs, but it's box jumps and lighter uh, weights, free weights, um, stuff like that. And then Fridays are lighter again. So then we go back to squatting, lunges, um, bicep curls. Uh, bench press, uh, all, all, the, all stuff like that. Yeah, it's, okay. it's pretty basic, but it's. I think uh, I think lifting, especially when you can't get in as much hill running as you want to, I think lifting is very important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's uh, yeah. so three, three times a week. Okay, but if you yeah, have a, three if times you... a week is definitely more in the extreme. Um, but you, I know two to three times a week is the norm for a lot of elite athletes and so three times a week for us is ideal 
out of season and we don't race. But as soon as you start racing, it's hard doing it three times a week. And then we cut it back to two times. Up until now, when I'm in the thick of my competition, I really only lift once, once a week. Yeah, okay. So, it, so if you've got a competition on the weekend, it's 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 once? Um, yeah, if it's, a, if it's not a big meet, we still do twice. Yep. But uh, I have nationals on Saturday, so this week I only lift it once on Monday. Okay. Okay. So, okay. Awesome. Thanks for sharing a bit about the program. And I guess just quickly, you mentioned nationals. You have run a few cross-country races uh, lately, and um, it'd be good to hear about what your goals are this year with the cross-country. I, I don't recall exactly how you went last year. I know you ran a couple of very quick 8K times in the cross. Um, one of them was sub-24 minutes, I think, from memory, which is under 3 minutes per kilometre, uh, or right around there. Um, so yeah. what is the yeah? What is the goal this year in the cross season? And then I guess we can then talk about what you think you might be aiming for in the indoor and outdoor track season. Yeah. So um, in the last year's cross season, I had a pretty up and down cross season. Uh, it was a good season, and I ran my PR for that season was twenty three thirty nine for the eight k, um, which is pretty good, but times in cross country are very irrelevant because you have different surfaces and different courses where it's hilly and where it's not hilly Um, so people tend to ignore good times it's more about where you place at at which meets so um, I I placed pretty high at some meets I came third at my conference at B10 which is uh, at the time for me it was really good because I was really a no name in the cross country scene it was my first cross season, um, so placing third at B10 was a, a big advo- a big uh, victory for me. And then uh, I placed 55th at the NCAA champs, which at the time I was pretty disappointed because uh, I expected more. But it shows you the depth of the competition that you get in the NCAA. Yeah. So um, this season, I feel I felt like I I came in with a lot more fitness uh, in in better shape. So um, I had a more consistent season. Um, so, for example, I, ran, I won my local home meet at Nebraska, and then uh, there was a big meet, the Pre-Nats uh, in Indiana, which is a uh, short for Pre-Nationals. And I finished fifth with a 23-31 on the 8K, which was also a new PR for me. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I was pretty, I was pretty happy with that. And then I finished second at my conference meet, which is a one-spot improvement from last year. Yeah, awesome. Big Ten's a very strong conference. Yeah, yeah, we got some pretty good distance runners. Um, one one guy's Australian, as you are, uh, Oliver Hall. So he's a pretty strong athlete. Yeah. And uh, we got a we got a pretty stacked stacked field. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. And so this this weekend is national is. So, so correct me if I'm wrong, this weekend's Nationals, which is, is that the NCAA? Sorry, I should know this. I, I mean, I went to college for only, well, admittedly only one semester, but it was a while ago. Is that NCAA Nationals or is that something else? Yeah, that's NCAA Nationals. And that's where last year you came 55th? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what, what's the goal yeah. this year? It's a, it's a 10K, so it, it moves up a bit from the 8K. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so this year I definitely want to... Finish top ten. If I uh, yeah, I think I would like to do that. Yeah. I've had a good season so far. Um, the ten k is a 
you it's a bit farther than 8k it's 2k more and uh it doesn't sound like a lot but when you when you cross the 8k mark in a race uh, it seems like a lot yeah absolutely <laughs> but, um yeah I, I feel like i'm in good shape and i feel like i can if i run a good race i can finish in a good position yeah did you did you ever do cross country when you were in college? I guess no, the semester I went to the semester I was over at Texas A and M was the track season. Um, oh okay. Yeah, so I didn't do any cross, but uh, okay. <clears throat> it sounds like it's <laughs> cross country in the in in the US in the college NCAA system is is uh, I mean you know track season's obviously it's very strong and very competitive, but cross country is extremely competitive. It seems. Yeah. I- and it's it's strangely enough, it's very popular too. Yeah. So I was shocked when I first came to the NCAA. Um, I mean, in a lot of countries, cross country doesn't really mean a lot, especially no. in South Africa. It doesn't have a lot of hype, and uh, people don't tend to care as much for it. But when I came here, it's you got flow track covering all the races, all the big meets at least. You got a at every meet there's. Really, no less than a thousand people next to the next to the race, yeah. and uh, they're all cheering enthusiastically. So I don't know if that's a product from just people being enthusiastic about their universities, and then cross country is just a product from that, or if people are genuinely interested in cross country. Mm. But uh, I guess one thing that helps is you have a lot of universities in the U.S. Um, I mean, if you count if you count all the cross country teams. Uh, all the programs across this, the country, it's a lot of it's a lot of people. And I guess if you do cross country, you're interested in what happens, and then it just trickles down to having a big fan base. Yeah, because you got athletes. Yeah, I've seen plenty of videos online of mostly flow track posting, and it, it seems like they're yeah, as you said, in South Africa, yeah. it's a small deal. In South Africa, it's also Australia, it's not huge uh, cross country season either. You know, some people compete in it, but you know, I couldn't even yeah. I couldn't even tell you who won the the national championships in the cross country, I, I just don't, I don't know. And I think many people don't even run the national championships in Australia cross country. But, um, but there's, really, there's really no incentive for that, is there? Like if you're an athlete in Australia or South Africa, what reason do you have to run in the cross season? There's no, there's not really a lot of money involved. Uh, there's not a lot of publicity involved. So I don't really see the incentive to run. Yeah. But the only one that comes to mind is qualifying for the World Cross Country Championships, but I may be missing. I, I'm, I'm a little bit clueless yeah. here, so I, I may be missing some incentives. I'll, I'll, I'll admit that. But, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I'm wrong, but in the US, there's a lot of incentive because if you participate in the NCAA Cross Country, you're obviously not a pro athlete yet. And if you manage to, to do well in the cross country season, you get a lot of publicity. Uh, you, you, you gain a fan base. So if you want to go pro, it's a lot. E- it's you go pro. It's a lot easier to go pro if you just do cross country and you do well. Mm. Um, the chances of you getting a contract from some clothing company mm. is a lot higher. If you do cross country, you place well nationals. You get publicity. So uh, the incentive, at least how I see it, is if you want to go pro, you get a lot of publicity from doing cross. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Awesome. Um, I want to just, uh, I guess, segue back to something that you said at the start because I want to talk a little bit about that before we talk more about the, I guess, your study of running training over the last couple of years and some of the conversations we've had. But the topic I'm talking about is when you said the myths involved in going to the NCAA is many people think that you'll be overworked, you'll be, I think you said, 
<laughs> treated like a, a donkey. Um, that doesn't seem to have happened to you at all. But do you know many other stories about other athletes, maybe from South Africa or people that you've met, that feel that way? And obviously, it's it's going to be a bit of a a lucky dip in in a sense of some colleges may may want to work you a little harder than others. It sounds like you're at a really good college that in, in a sense of you're, you're given some quite a bit of freedom to do what you, what you want for training. But, you know, what, what have you heard from others? Yeah, so the unfortunate side about any sport um, is only a small percentage of athletes really make it one day. Um, so regardless in, of what system you, you are, um, the chances of you making it as a pro athlete, is, it's not that high. So I think a lot of myths come out of that because we see a lot of athletes, let's say South Africans, see a lot of people going to the U.S. and then coming back empty-handed, not a, not making it as a pro athlete. And then they blame that on the NCAA system. Yeah. But when you look at athletes staying in South Africa or any country for that matter, uh, still not a lot of athletes make it as a pro athlete. So it's hard to really judge what the contributing factors is to them not making it. Um, but there's always going to be good and bad stories. Um, it depends on who you ask. But for me, uh, I've had a good experience, and I think the NCAA protects the the average athlete a lot more than, let's say, South Africa or, or any other country does. Um, so, yeah, and I've I've had a very good experience, um, and I've I've heard of some people that that said, yeah, their coach really wanted them just to race and pace their better athletes, um, not caring for them as much. And, uh, un- yeah, that's unfortunate, but I think you'll find a lot of positive and negative experiences, and it's, it's really what you make of it, too. Um, you, you can't just come here and expect everybody's going to hand it to you on a golden platter. But um, in general, I think the NCAA is, is a great system. Yeah, absolutely. I have definitely heard of a bit of both sides, uh, one uh, guy that was my age. So this is this is when I went to Texas A and M. As I've already said, it was a good twelve years ago now. But one athlete from Australia who went over at the same time as me. He went to Penn State. He improved from a one fifty eight hundred meter guy to a one forty six eight hundred meter guy in his time there. And most of that improvement came in the first year, actually. Um, uh, I think I think he went from from memory down to one forty seven in the first year and then 146 in the second year. But, uh, yeah, I've definitely heard of both both ends. Uh, I really should know the name of the NCAA cross-country champion from last year, but you might know it, the Australian. Yeah, for sure, Morgan McDonald. Morgan McDonald. Uh, he's obviously <laughs> benefited from the system over there because he's he's now a, a professional athlete. Uh, and yes. there's been quite a few others from Australia that have had great experiences, but then there's also been those that have done exactly what you've said, they've gone over, they haven't really improved much, or maybe they've improved a little bit, but, but not enough, and they've kind of come back and not necessarily blamed the system, but they've, they've sort of said, well, it didn't, it didn't work for me. But you never know that, you know, if they'd stayed at home, that, you, that they might not have improved either. So yeah. you, you never you know. Yeah, it's, it's hard to really judge what happened, but I think it depends on the individual program we go to as well. Um, the NCAA system as a whole only can do as much for you, but the program where you go I think has a bigger influence on your performance than the NCAA system has yeah so uh, let's take Morgan McDonald he went to Wisconsin which is a excellent distance program they have uh, Mick Byrne which is an excellent coach 
So um, for him, it worked out pretty well because he was part of a great program with a great coach. But if he went to a different college, maybe it would not have worked out as well. And that would not have necessarily been the NCAA's fault, but maybe the individual program it's fault or yeah yeah so it's not always the NCAA's fault it's sometimes the specific university you go to yeah I mean course. I may I may like, I may not have worded that very well in the last five minutes I didn't yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're uh yeah. you're pointing out you're, you're making a good point there it's not the system's fault but but I think one thing that you've done very well and is what I would advise strongly advise anyone listening to this that's maybe considering going to college in the US is that is that you went over there not necessarily just saying or just thinking, I'm going to do exactly what I'm told. Um, you know, you had a nice balance of saying, okay, well, these coaches have experience. They they probably know more than me, but at the same time, you know your body better than anyone else. So you have to really try and find that balance or that, that, that section in the middle where you're able to take their advice, take their expertise, but also go or also know when to say, I'm a bit tired, I might need a little bit more rest or recovery or easy running, um, and I think that those people that just that just get over there and follow the system blind or follow the program blindly and don't really listen to their body anymore and get get sort of uh, sucked into just doing what the team does and ignore how they're feeling, people in that camp regularly don't improve or they yeah. might, they might even go backwards. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I really like. I mean, as I said a couple of times already in this podcast is that I've spoken to you quite a lot um, between the time that you arrived there in Nebraska and today. Um, we've kind of pretty much checked in with each other every month or, or two. And uh, yeah, you're, you're very good at, at, at knowing where that line is between taking the expertise but also doing what you know is best for yourself. And I think that's really important for athletes to be able yeah. to do. And it's also hard to do when you're 18, 19, 20. It's not easy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, it depends on the, the coach you have and the program you're part of because um, I mean I agree with you 100% it's, you should find a balance but a lot of the time it is a, you're part of a team so when you come here you're not really an individual you're really part of a team and so you do what the coach tells you to do and uh, a lot of times it's hard breaking apart because you're, you're really part of a unit and part of a team um, and so obviously you're not always going to feel great and you're not always going to feel what the team is feeling so I think a lot of athletes get bogged down because they have to find a balance between doing what's best for, for them individually, but also still forming a part of the team and doing what the team does. Um, and that's also one big difference from the countries being an athlete in a country like South Africa or Australia or anywhere else and being an athlete in the NCAA is in South Africa or Australia or anywhere else, you're an individual athlete and you run for yourself. But when you come here, you're part of a team. Mm. And you've got to compete for the university. You've got to try none of the coach that uni- university gives you. You're part of the team. So that's one big difference as well. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I, I tell you, you've got to find a balance for sure. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's one thing that people can take away from listening to this if you are thinking about going over to college in the US is to to really, I mean, there's no specific advice there, but it's just to think about that and think, well, I have to make sure I'm still listening to my body over there and not just doing exactly what the team are doing. Yeah. Um, yeah, cool. Well, we've probably got about 10 minutes left in this episode. I like to keep these episodes to around an hour. Um, and I think that we discussed something before this call that we both would like to chat about, and that's a very general topic that 
is <laughs> there's no uh there's no end to this debate and it's 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 the different training methods that that are that are out there and yeah. you know you you've subscribed to sweat elite um over the last uh, year or two and you've regularly checked in with me and asked me questions about what I think about certain philosophies and ideas you, you you've you've come to like um the the I guess the Sebastian Coe Peter Coe method of late yeah. these sort of five yeah. pace training method where you go through the different paces of uh 400 meter speed 800 1500 3k um and 5k uh and then aerobic running on top of that but um yeah let's talk a bit about that in the last in the last 10 minutes because it's it's certainly an interesting one and it'd be good to hear what you've learned lately yeah reading up on Sphere Elite on a regular basis, um, I, uh, I was drawn to uh, all the Lydiot's principles because um, it uh, it's, it's very basic and uh, it really it gives you a way to improve yourself. You can read up on it and you can really, it's not that hard to incorporate that in your training. And so um, I started reading up a lot about that and then as soon as I read the Peter and Sepco uh, multi- I think it's called the the multi approach. Yes. Um, I really liked that because it seemed like that was a logical refinement of the Lydiate principles. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not it's not really it's not two different philosophies. It's just like one philosophy that evolved into a more clique yes. um, philosophy. And so uh, yeah, I I liked that a lot. But then I started reading up on the um, that that Canova coach the marathon coach yep his his philosophy differs completely from what Lydia Lydia tells us and what Peter Cove and Sepp Cove tells us yes and uh, it just uh, I was uh, before before I read up on Canova's principles I really thought that the only way that you can improve on a consistent basis is following Lydia's principles but when I when I read up on Canova's principles I really it was hard for me to align the two, the two principles and the two philosophies. Um, and I guess that's when I started realizing there's really no one secret to train. I think there's, there's a lot of different ways to train. Obviously, there's a certain stuff that all programs adhere to, but there's really no secret. No. And, uh, yeah, I was just dumbfounded by the, the, diff- the success that people get from following different programs. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like Lydia and Co's methods are, are much more successful and much more common in the middle distances and yeah. even through to sort of 5K. But I feel like, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, I haven't studied Canova extensively, um, but I've obviously I've, I've, I've had a few conversations with him in person. I've, I've read up quite a bit about him. His, his methods tend to be more towards the half marathon and marathon and, and 10K. Yes. Um, yeah. And, yeah. and he's all about practicing running at your race pace in those distances I don't know yeah. how many athletes he has coached to the elite level in the middle distances. I don't think there's many. I know that Ronald Quemoy is one. He ran 3.27 or 3.28, 1,500 recently. Um, yeah. Could have even been quicker. It was around there. It was it was very quick. Uh, yeah. But he was not an 800 guy. He was more of a 1,500, 5K guy. Um, but I don't know how many other athletes Canova has coached in the middle distances. I don't think there's many. So... Um, you, I think that's something to keep in mind when you're comparing the philosophies is that is that Canova is definitely geared more towards the, the 10K or, or 5K, 10K through to the marathon. 
Um, yeah. Whereas whereas Coe's is more in the middle distances, but of course there are people yeah. that have had success in the five k as well, ten k with Coe's philosophies. Yeah, I mean Coe himself ran a pretty decent five k. Yeah, thirteen. What was it? Thirteen low. Yeah. Yeah. Thirteen pretty fast. Yep. Um, but one thing I, I found interesting as well from reading sweaty leaders when you post different athletes individual athletes programs um training programs i know you posted a a centrovich the book the edition you post about salazar um and then uh, you know i know you post luke matthews uh program and i really find it interesting in, in looking at other people's programs and comparing it to what i'm doing and comparing it to each other uh i know you should never read too much into someone's program because uh a lot of a lot of elite athletes get away with not training as elite as uh, as possible because of talent and what and a lot of reasons. But it's always interesting to see what they're doing and see if you're on the right track and see if you're doing similar stuff to what elite athletes are doing. Yeah, and on that topic, I liked you said something to me a couple of months back when you said, um, oh, "What was it exactly?" You said you said something like, uh, pe- "People sometimes get frustrated at at sweat elite because." we seem to be posting different uh, methods and you made it yeah. you very quickly pointed out you said but we're not we're not saying anything's wrong or right yeah 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 i think i think people want to want to be spoon-fed but sweetly literally just gives you the they just give you facts and you have to arrange it on your own you have to apply it on your own you have to draw your own conclusions yes um i like sweetly is just a platform where they where you uh you Get knowledge, and then people have to take that knowledge and apply it themselves. Correct. Yeah. Uh, and for some people, that's a problem. But personally, I prefer that because you don't tell me what's right and wrong. You just give me information, and I can make of that information what I want. Yes. That's um, correct. And I feel like that's that's more that's that's more effective because because everyone is so much different in training and stuff. Yeah. So what I read up and what I derive from what i read is different than the next guy and different from the next guy so i really i like the system that you have in place and that you just give knowledge and you don't tell people this is right you should do this and not this i mean i don't don't think that work no no and i do think that as you said just before that last uh, minute or two it is good to just maybe maybe do a little bit of a comparison um about where your interval sessions are and compared to someone like luke matthews or Compared to someone like Seb Coe at his at his at his peak, you know how, you know what sort of one k intervals are they doing compared to yourself? And of course, you know the, there are other factors there to, to to think about when you when you are comparing training sessions. Like, you know, you might be in the middle of a hundred mile week, whereas Luke Matthews or Seb Coe may have been taking a little bit easier that week. That can play a part. But yeah, yeah I mean, it is at the end of the day, it is just information. It is just engaging. It's interesting, and that's all we really yeah. try to do. Um, so yeah yeah a lot of times people look at one week of training uh, of an athlete and then they try and recreate whatever that athlete did in a week but i mean any any decent athlete would know that one week of training is really a, a drop in the ocean and yeah. so there's not a whole lot of conclusions you can derive from a week of training no. um so i think it's dangerous to look at a week of training and then try and recreate whatever they're doing because they can be in any cycle of training, yes. I think it's dangerous trying to recreate. Uh, and uh, I mean, a week is now arbitrary number I chose, but any short 
period of training is really a lot of times irrelevant. It's more about the system that you have in place and the training you do months in, months out. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, we're going to wrap up the episode with one last question for you, and it's what you think about data. And what I mean by data is how closely are you... I've become really interested in this topic lately, and a few of the podcasts have been featured uh, this. What do you think about tracking your paces, your heart rate, your... Yeah. You know, yeah. In a couple yeah, of minutes that, or less, what 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 are your thoughts on this? Yeah, that is a very interesting topic. Um, so when I started reading up a lot more about running, I was also becoming a data junkie um, because you want to define the aerobic zone, you want to define the, the your threshold, you want to define your aerobic threshold, you want to define all the running concepts. And so when I started reading up on all these concepts, I thought, well, there's only one way of tracking all these concepts. There's only one way of knowing when I'm in the aerobic zone, when I'm crossing the threshold, when I'm in the, when I'm crossing the lactic threshold, all those thresholds. And so I bought myself a Garmin watch and a heart rate strap, a heart rate monitor. And uh, on easy ones, I would check my heart rate and in workouts, I would check my heart rate. And, uh, and I always find it interesting, but after a while, I realized that it, it's really, it's almost like calorie counting. It's, it's, it gets dangerous, you know, because um, then you, you really, you're becoming a slave to whatever your watch is telling you. Um, and uh, a lot of times it takes out the joy of running. And so I think there is a place for tracking all those fancy stuff, but I really think it shouldn't dominate your training because um, then you start losing your joy and passion for running. Yeah. Um, so now... I really go more on, on how I feel um, more than I do trust my watch. I really trust how I feel. So I, when you when you've run a lot, you know when you're basically in the aerobic zone and when you're crossing. I mean, crossing the lactic threshold, it's pretty easy to know. I mean, when you start getting lactic, you know you're in. Yes. You cross that threshold. Yes. And I think you need watch to tell you that you've just crossed the lactic threshold. Um, so. I think there's a place for that, but I don't think an athlete should worry about that. I think a coach should worry about that more than the athlete. Yeah, that's a very good answer. Cool. Well, George is findable, I guess. Uh, the best way is on, on Instagram. Uh, George, so K-U-S-C-H-E-G-E-O-R-G-E. Uh, yeah. And I just want to ask one question about your Instagram. What does LF... One 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 mean, which is on your profile. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's kind of like a a running joke between me and my girlfriend. Um, so her name is Lizzie Ferrara, so LF, and so her hotspot passport. Well, I should pro- I should probably not tell everybody what her hotspot password is, but it, uh, I needed I needed Wi-Fi, and so she gave me her hotspot. And <laughs> for some reason, I just for some reason I just liked her her password, which was LF one 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 one, and so. Yeah, I just put it in my bio. <laughs> <laughs> That's your Instagram bio. Okay, yeah, it says George Cush and then LF11111. Uh, okay, thanks for sharing. Yeah, thanks yeah. so much for joining on the podcast, George. Um, it's uh, all the best for nationals this weekend, and I'm looking forward to hearing how you go. Yeah, thank you very much, and uh, thank you for the, the time. No problem at all.